The question tonight came to me in a number of different ways. Th a couple of things. The reason you don't have notes is because, is because I was uh, so many different ways to approach it and so many different things I wanted to say. So I, I thought for these, I'm just going to scribble down some things and kind of organize them as I go. So it might be a little rambly, but the question that comes, the issue that arises is basically this. We know what uh, Paul says in Romans 1 in particular about homosexual sins. And it's not that that isn't accepted by the vast majority of evangelical people, but the thinking that's coming out increasingly, and I did a, I did a teaching on it. You can, you can see it online. Just go under YouTube um, where uh, Brian Zahn, Brian McLaren, Bruxy Cavey, they came out with an apology from the evangelical church to the gay community, and, and I just did a reply to it. I just did it winging it on a Sunday night, basically, um, and it's called a sincere but misguided apology. If you just put Horbin, um, Zahn, KV, it'll, it'll come up. And it's had thousands and thousands of views, to my stunned surprise. So the argument by a lot of Christian leaders, I'm not saying all those that I just mentioned, but a lot of Christian leaders is, yes, Paul is against homosexuality, but not against homosexuality as it's understood today, where you have a, a genuine same-sex orientation that results in a monogamous, faithful relationship, perhaps even in marriage. Paul didn't have that in mind. Did he, Pastor Don? Because I've heard, this is what the question says in different ways, I've heard that that just referred to, you go through the Old Testament and there's all sorts of cultic uh, homosexual practices with male prostitutes. There's there's uh, pedophilia, there's, there's all sorts of violent sexual acts. Surely that's what Paul is talking about. He, he would not have had the understanding that we have today of a genuine same-sex orientation that could be practiced as faithfully as a heterosexual union could be practiced. Pastor Dong, what do you think about that? That's where we are. That's what we're looking at tonight. We're going to try and do it. Uh, in about 25 minutes. There's another issue that's tied in with it. Riding in the wake of cultural speedboat of the destigmatization of same-sex intercourse is the mainstreaming of gender nonconformists. Witness June 9th issue of Time magazine, Laverne Cox, born a boy, is on the front page in his chosen female identity. Cox, the star of the Netflix drama Orange is the New Black, gives a lengthy and illuminating online interview with Time reporter Katie Steinmetz. It's a sad story of a very painful childhood, an absent father, an emotionally disconnected mother, an attempted suicide, and a marginally significant church. Up until the third grade, Cox says, I just thought that I was a girl and that there was no difference between boys and girls. I think in my imagination, I thought that I would hit puberty and would just start turning into a girl. Uh, he had one twin brother, no sisters. The supreme treasure Cox longed for was fame. I wanted to be famous. I wanted to perform. 
those things I really, really wanted more than anything else. My mother just had an ability to fully emotionally connect. I never knew my father. He was never married to my mother. He was never part of my life. Today, Cox is touring the country giving a stump speech entitled, Ain't I a Woman? When Cox says it, that refrain is not a question. Cox claims, I'm happy that I am myself, and I couldn't imagine my life if I were still in denial or lying, pretending to be a boy. That seems ridiculous to me. That seems crazy. It's nice to be done with all that transitioning. Folks want to believe that genitalia and biology are like destiny. All these designations are based on a penis and then a vagina. And that's supposed to say all these different things about who people are. When you think about it, it's kind of ridiculous. People need to be willing to let go of what they think they know about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman because that doesn't necessarily mean anything inherently. It goes on and on and on. That isn't specifically the issue tonight, though it does tie in with the text we're going to look at. So I got a I got to kind of rush in a little bit of a disjointed way. I want to tell you my approach. I want to tell you how, A, how not to argue against homosexual practice. And I'm not, I don't have time to develop it. Don't go to Leviticus. Don't go to a theocratic old covenant text and say Leviticus XXX says it's uh, sin for a man to lie with a man as with a woman there. Don't do that because four verses ahead of that, it's going to say it's a sin for a son to curse his parents, and if he does, he should be stoned and put to death. And it's just a wide open door for a clever arguer to say, we don't stone people for swearing at their parents. Why should we condemn homosexuality? It's a loser's game going to those texts. Those texts are a theocratic governmental system for an old covenant relationship with God that we don't live under today. That'll be another subject for another Sunday night question and answer. I want to tell you how I go at it when I'm thinking these issues through. The texts I go to are these in this order. I go to Romans 1, 18 to 31. I don't have slides. If you've got a Bible, it would be helpful for you because I'm going to refer to some specific things in here. And try and get this done. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What kind of unrighteousness is he talking about? And it's not homosexuality. 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are excuse. Stop there. The argument Paul is making is this. People are blame, blameworthy before God, worthy of judgment, condemnation. They have no excuse. Why? Because even though they don't have a Bible, even though they don't have a seminary or a Bible school, these people can look at the world around them. They can see how things are made. It doesn't require an education. It doesn't require any sociological advantage. 
you can look at the created world and you have to say, wow. You can see God's attributes, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, 20, his divine nature, verse 20. So these people have never seen Jesus Christ. They don't know about the cross. They've never heard the gospel, but they can look at the world around them. There's invisible things about God. They can't see God. Invisible, that's an important word. How are they going to know? They will look at the things God has made, and they ought to be able to understand something of God's power and majesty. That's Paul's argument. Then he continues. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Here's people who could have known obvious things about God just from his creative power, and they chose to reject that revelation. That's where we're at in the argument. What did they do? Claiming to be wise, they became fools, 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. So they became idolatrous. They put images resembling mortal man. It isn't just physical idols. They, They put the worship of self, their own expression of worship, They put that at the center and pushed God in his revelation in nature. They pushed that to the side. Okay, 24. Therefore, okay, so what does God do about this? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, okay, what's God going to do? God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural desires, natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Just this quick point. The passion, that, the passion that people feel for same-sex relations doesn't make it natural. Do you see that in that verse? The desire is there. The passion is there. But the argument Paul makes is not that, well, if the passion is there, that must be a natural thing. Paul's argument is the exact opposite. That reveals a fallen passion. Don't define yourself by a temptation. That's what Paul is saying. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women. So natural relations are defined for men as being with women. We're consumed with passion. The desire was there. Intense desire one for another. But that doesn't make it natural. That doesn't make it right. That's a very important point in this text. Because the argument today is that this is, this is the only desire I've ever known. How can you say it's not me? Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their errors. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not, what ought not to be done. These next verses are important. I want to explain why. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. It's not just, it's not just homosexuality. 
evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You see, he's got this long list. All of which ought to make us ask a question. Paul's going to talk about what happens when people reject what can be known about God through his created order. What happens? Well, God gives them up to a debased mind, he says. Now, there's all sorts of sins in that, those last couple of verses that I read. There's a list, and it could have been longer, right? Question. Why then? Given that, given that homosexuality is not the only sin that's the result of this debased mind, why is it that when he talks immediately about the result of not accepting God's revelation in creation. Why is it that the very first sin he mentions? Does that make sense to you? Why would it be homosexuality? Why isn't it uh, greed, anger, idolatry, maliciousness, envy, boastfulness? Why isn't it some of the murder, theft? Why aren't those listed right away? The first thing he talks about is men committing acts with men, women with women. And here's why. Because the second part of that text where he describes those homosexual relationships, that's not Paul moving on to a new subject. That is Paul continuing the same argument that he raised in the first few verses, 18, 19, and 20. In other words, just as you can know about an invisible God by what he has made, you can know about human sexuality by what he has made. That's his argument. He's not changing arguments. It's the very same argument. That's why homosexuality is the only argument that really suits his purpose right at that point. Just as surely as, given what I see about God, in the created world, I am not left to choose who I will worship. In the physical realm of the, the, the creation of our bodies, I am not left to choose my preference in terms of how I will express sexuality. That's, that's his point. You, 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 you get to know about the true God by what he has made. That should dictate how you worship. You get to know about human sexuality by what God has made and the way he has made it, and that's how you express sexuality. Nature isn't the desire. Nature is the created order in that text. You know that because of the way he says in verse 27, these men, they have passion one for another. That doesn't make it right. Because <laughs> he says they commit shameful acts. They have the, the passion. They have the desire. The desire doesn't justify it. The desire never justified. He had an a man had in the opening verses, 18, 19, 20, a desire to worship other gods. Did that make it right? No. Why? Well, because they can see what God is like and what he has made. People have all sorts of different sexual desires. Does that make them right? No. Why? Because we can see how God wanted sex to be expressed by what he has made. Everybody understand what I'm, what I'm saying? It's the same argument that he develops. Whom we should worship is not left to our preference. 
And who we are as sexual beings is not left to our preference either. Both stem from the way we are made. I want to look at another text, and I'm going to come back to this one in a minute. Matthew. Matthew chapter 19. I wrestled with how... uh, I'm not really good at at, um, explicit kind of talk from behind a a pulpit. So I want you to know this. Some of the things I'm going to say aren't easy for me, but I think we're all all big people in the room, and I think I can do it. Matthew 19. I just want to look. There's a whole argument in here. I just want to look at 4, 5, and 6. He, that's Jesus, he's talking to the Pharisees. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. I want to talk about that for a minute. Um, in that quote I read from Cox, the point that she was trying to make is that a, a penis and a vagina, those should not define who we are sexually. And all I want to say is Um, it flies right in the face of what Jesus is actually saying in this text. I I think we soften what Jesus is saying in this text, and we soften it to our peril. When Jesus talks about the two becoming one flesh, the two becoming one flesh, he's he's not just talking, saying two people, just they become soulmates. That's not what he's talking about. When Jesus talks about the two becoming one flesh, He's talking about a a sexual union that is only possible between a man and a woman, right? We we get it. That 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 whole thing about uh, the penis and the vagina, how they they are they are designed in marriage for each other in a way that a penis is not designed for any other bodily orifice. Do you all understand what I'm saying? So that's significant to me. Jesus is describing the physical union in a marriage that cannot be accomplished by anyone but a man and a woman. Now there you have a stronger argument than going to Leviticus and finding a list of rules and regulations. And then what Jesus does, of course, is he goes back to Genesis 2. And Jesus says, this is the way it was from the beginning. When God made a man and a woman. And the two shall be one flesh. Joined together in one flesh. And so, in, in, this is so strikingly significant. And to me, it's absolutely airtight. And I think Jesus does it on purpose. I think Tony Campolo is dead wrong when he says, you know, Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. I think he did. I think he did it in this way when he said, you can't describe marriage union 
between anyone else except a man and a woman, Jesus says. And it's been that way right from the beginning. That, to me, is it's an airtight argument. It's an airtight argument. It's only possible between a man and a woman. Now you go back to Romans 1, just for a minute. We're doing, oh, we're running out. Are you still with me? So when Paul talks about sins against nature, he doesn't mean sins against my nature. That's not what he's talking about. We know that because of verse 27, where he says the passion doesn't make the desire legitimate. Just because you feel passion, a man for another man, that desire doesn't make that a natural relationship. Natural is, he's using Jesus' definition. Natural in terms of the way God made things. So in terms of nature, take nature out and you can put created design. That's what Paul's talking about. That's not a guess. That's just the language of the text. Sinning against God's creative design. So the argument goes like this. God is invisible. You can't see him. But that doesn't mean you have an excuse for not knowing about him. You can learn about an invisible God by looking at the things he has made. Sexual desires are inward things. You can't see them. That doesn't mean sexual definitions are up for grabs. You can know about human sexuality by looking at the way God made things. And I think you're on way more solid ground in that kind of a setup than trying to find some, some text in Leviticus or something and arguing about this person shall be stoned and this person shall be cut off from his people. Because... Because everybody knows we don't apply all those texts. We mix fabrics, and nobody kills somebody for it in today's world. Don't, don't use your argument against homosexuality. And the same with transgenderism. It's, you, look at, you look at the way God made things, and that's your understanding of human sexuality. 